0: All right, Nick, so we're done with our boards and uh, CREOGs are over for this year. But, you know, what do we do if we want to keep making sure that we're up to date? on the most current OBGYN practices.
1: Yeah, as we get this podcast together every week, we have to always think about our friends over at the OBG Project who have these amazing summaries that are updated every day of the week, encompassing the latest research, encompassing newest practices, um, and also posting things like Grand Rounds where they get into the controversies of modern obstetric and gynecologic practice.
0: And for all you residents out there, they also have a great core curriculum for you to study from. Um, We know that you probably want a break after Creong's, but definitely something worth checking out. And for all you chief residents out there, you can get one-year subscription to OBG First. Alright guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is...
1: Creogs over, over coffee.
0: coffee. So today we have with us back uh, a very special guest, um, Dr. Aparna Sridhar, who's an associate clinical professor at the David Geffen School of Medicine at the University of California, Los Angeles. Um, she is a family planning fellowship trained OBGYN. And today she's going to be talking to us about permanent sterilization. So welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for
2: having me again. Fun coming back here, looking forward to this conversation.
1: Yeah, we're looking forward to to it too, Doctor Sridhar, because again, somehow in our like years of podcasting, we have overlooked this really important topic as we come back to a, back to basics in a lot of ways. Um, so, in any case, what are our learning objectives for today?
2: I think we're going to review permanent sterilization, both for the fallopian tube surgery and the vast different surgical option we will understand the efficacy of female sterilization and go a little bit into the historic perspective of where the efficacy and, you know, the studies came from, and also describe some common benefits and risks associated with surgical sterilization.
0: Well, let's start off with the basics then, Dr. Sridhar. What proportion of women end up getting permanent contraception or using that as a way of preventing pregnancy? Right. The latest data that we have is actually from the Guttmacher
2: Institute, like 2018, um, the Kind of got that data, and we see that about eighteen percent of women who are aged between fifteen and forty-nine, um, and this is about twenty-seven percent of the contraceptive users use um, permanent female method for contraception, and about six percent, to be precise, about five point six percent rely on their partner's vasectomy for contraception. So, if you combine that eighteen and five and a half, so almost like twenty-four percent of the um of women age 15 to 49 are currently using some or the other form of permanent contraception so all the more reason for us to know about it if you look at the world data there's about i think about 30 percent of the world's couple um they end up using permanent contraception. So it all makes sense as OBGYNs that we should consider both like female and male sterilization as valid options for our patients and be able to be in a position to counsel them about the risks, benefits, and um, the details of the different methods of permanent contraception.
1: Excellent. So why don't we start off with the female permanent sterilization? Because again, that's something that probably Some, or at least most of our listeners are probably more familiar with. What are the different types that are available, and can you review some of the approaches and maybe even the anatomy?
2: Yeah, that's a great point. Let's start with a quick overview of fallopian tube anatomy, right? If we remember, like back to basics, the uterine part, also known as the intramural or the interstitial portion of the fallopian tube, this is the one that passes through the body of the uterus. And this is where we kind of talk about the cornua. Then comes the isthmic portion that's right next to the uterine body. Um, it has like a narrow lumen and kind of a thicker muscular wall because it's right coming off of the uterine body. Then we have like the anterior portion, um, which kind of begins at the distal isthmic portion. It kind of widens. And it has more of a convoluted mucosa, So that's kind of the main portion of the fallopian tube. And then we have the infundibular portion of the um, tube that's kind of distal continuation of the ampullary segment. This contains the fimbriated portion at the distal end, these um, frond-like projections. And remember, fimbria ovarica, that kind of gets into the extension that contacts with the ovary. So that's kind of the basic overview of the different parts of the fallopian tube. And if we remember again, the um, arterial supply, it really comes from ovarian artery, which um, runs along the, um ovaries, hilum, and kind of send several branches out to the fallopian tube through the mesosalpines. And similarly, the venous plexus, the lymphatic drainage is very similar to like same course as those of the ovaries. So very easy to remember in terms of the arterial supply and the venous drainage um, for the fallopian tubes as well. After reviewing the anatomy, let's kind of talk about the different types of the procedures. And I think, Before diving into the different types, it also kind of is important for us to understand the timing um, at which these surgeries can be performed. So honestly, we can perform this at any time after pregnancy. I mean, honestly, as long as a woman is really thoroughly counseled about the permanent nature of it and they want it um, and you rule out a pregnancy, that's a good time to perform permanent sterilization. Sometimes we always have to wonder can this be performed like after abortion and yes post-abortion sterilization can be performed immediately after like an uncomplicated spontaneous or induced abortion um, with really no major risk compared to an interval procedure but I think In practicality, it's a lot to do with insurance and coverage. So we don't end up seeing a lot of like peri or post-abortion procedures in the United States. But however, when you kind of perform it as an interval procedure after the pregnancy ends, you really need to make sure that we do like a urine pregnancy test before the procedure to make sure a person is not already pregnant. But again, another good practice is to schedule these surgeries ideally around the follicular phase where the risk of pregnancy is low. or even better is to have them on some kind of bridging contraception before the procedure so that you reduce the likelihood of a pregnancy. And also I think as OBGYNs, we remember um, the postpartum sterilizations which are done like immediately like at the time of c-section or right after the delivery and um, that's really important to give access to women for postpartum sterilization because it's you know we know from studies that um, almost like half of those who requested postpartum sterilization and didn't get it um, they end up getting pregnant. So it's kind of really important that we go over, um, you know, we try to perform it right at the time when a, if a woman desires the postpartum sterilization. But going back to the original question of different types, I think we can think about the leparotomy or the mini leparotomy approaches. And these are the ones that we used to perform like pretty commonly. And now I think, you know, now a little bit different. So for example, there is Parkland method, which is at the midpoint of the fallopian tube, you find an avascular space in the Um, You kind of place a hemostat be- beneath the tube, and then you should allow like an excision of like a two centimeter segment that does not incorporate the fimbria. Um, and then that's your kind of Parkland method. The Pomeroy, which is another common method we used to use, um, is grasping and elevating about two centimeter mid-segment of the tube and then creating like a loop, um, tying with like a plain cat gut suture and then excising the distal portion of the loop, again, about like a good two centimeter portion of it. Originally, it was described with chromic. Now it's using plain gut. So Parkland and Pomeroy are still, I think, the most commonly used mini laparotomy approaches in most parts of the United States and also worldwide. There were some other methods like Irving and Urchida method um, in which you kind of have to bury a portion of the cut fallopian tube either into the meso salpings or into the myometrium distally, very complicated. And usually I don't think it's most of historic interest at this point in time. And finally, um, salpingectomy, which is also more and more like commonly performed at this point in time. There is kind of limited data at this time about the use of this in, in the laparotomy or like mini laparotomy approach. But I think we will get more data as we go further in time because this is being performed more commonly. So. These are like the mini lap or the laparotomy approaches. And then if we think about the laparoscopic approaches, we have, um, again, salpingectomy, uh, tubal excision. Now I think it's getting more and more popular because um, one, higher efficacy, and two, obviously the big benefit of the prevention of ovarian cancer, especially for those undergoing any other surgery. And we know that um, salpingectomy has kind of like less of, you know, has not been associated with any increased risk complications such as needing blood transfusion or post-op complication, etc. So I think that is being done more often. In the past, I think this is even when I was a resident resident, um, A decade or more ago, we used to use the electrocoagulation, um, bipolar, remember, unipolar is not recommended because there is higher risk of bowel injury, but you kind of take about three centimeter of the isthmic portion of the tube. And we used to have one of these um, bipolar current meter, and it would kind of make these interesting noise to say that it's visualization of the desiccation of the tissue as well as that auditory clue to say that that tube is actually coagulated was one of the things um, and then some of the other things which are again getting less and less usage in the United States are like the mechanical ones um, like the silicone rubber band there was the spring loaded clip or the titanium clip which had like a little bit of inner uh, material which would have like a compression effect on the tube. Um, but all of these mechanical devices needed like special applicators. Um, so now I think with the injectomy being more common, these are becoming less and less. But however, when they were used, um, these were kind of used more often so much so. And also these were the ones which had like a little bit higher um, ability for future reversal, if anybody even ever thought of it. So that's kind of like a, overview of the laparoscopic approaches and last but not the least i feel like i have to bring up the hysteroscopic approach even though at this point in time it's become more of a thing of the past because as of 2018 um there was the only hysteroscopic sterilization option was also discontinued but remember that it was it was available and it's still i think they are trying to do some um Uh, post-marketing like um, follow-up studies and stuff so we may hear about it in the future so that is that's like another kind of option which was available which is no longer currently available so that's long overview of all the different
0: types of the female permanent sterilization Awesome. Thank you so much for that very thorough review. Um, I'm sure that our listeners really appreciate kind of listening to all those different types because even, you know, I feel like we had learned about some of these, but we definitely didn't use things like the Irving method or even electrocauterization in our residency. Um, I wanted to kind of turn our conversation now to um, the male permanent contraception um, because I think we sometimes counsel our patients about these and say, hey, just to let you know, this is an option. But, you know, I myself have never performed a vasectomy, Um, so I'm interested to kind of hear a little bit about um, how we could potentially counsel our patients about this, and also exactly what uh, a vasectomy entails. So mostly the male um, permanent contraception,
2: which is the vasectomy, um, is performed by urologists in the United States. We won't go into the details of it, but a quick anatomy refresher, just like what we did for Fallopian tube. remember just beneath the scrotal skin, there's that dartos fascia. And then you have the internal spermatic fascia. And when you go in, there's this spermatic card, which contains like the vast difference and all the neurovascular bundles and um, associated with it. Right. So that's kind of the vast is the main thing that we um, usually, um, you know, transect like um, portion of it in order to achieve male contraception. So, There are two different types, the traditional or conventional vasectomy and the newer one, which is like the no scalpel vasectomy, um, which is very popular at this point in time in the United States. So the big difference is that in the traditional one, you actually make a small incision. bilaterally on the scrotal area, and then you mobilize and transect the vas, right? But whereas in the no-scalpel vasectomy, you kind of make a small puncture and then you use these um, vas forceps, which are kind of like tiny hemostats, and then you widen that small puncture wound enough to externalize the vas difference and then the transection is exactly same as you would do with the traditional um, vasectomy or like the conventional vasectomy technique. I think in the United States um, the nose scalpel vasectomy is the preferred technique most of the times it's mostly like an office-based procedure um, because lower complication rates um, and it's like much easier to do but I think if you really look at the Um, worldwide acceptance. I think there's much more to be done to uh, make the no no scalpel vasectomy more of a popular approach.
1: No, and I think that's perfect too, because that's about three, five minutes of explanation that I now have that I never had before. Um, So thank you for that. (laughs) Why don't we talk now about efficacy of these permanent methods? Because I think they often get heralded as like you know, the thing to use if you never want to get pregnant again, right? But is that really true? If not, then what exactly is the, you no know, failure rate, I guess, of these methods?
2: Right. So permanent methods are permanent, but they still have failure rates um, because nothing is 100% in life, right? So vasectomy um, is actually way more effective compared to the female stabilization. Um, And remember, I think when we talk about efficacy of any contraceptive method, we talk about the typical use and the perfect use. Good thing about the permanent sterilization is that there's not much discrepancy between the typical and the perfect use, because obviously, once you perform a surgery, um, usually there's not much of human effort that's needed. So there is less of the error. So the discrepancy between the typical and the permanent uh, the perfect use um, efficacy is similar. So the failure rates uh, for vasectomy is like 0.1 um, for the perfect use and 0.15 like for the um, typical use and the tubal surgery for female sterilization pretty much is like 0.5, right? Historically, whenever we talk about the efficacy of the permanent methods, there is always this study that I think we will have to remember. And this was the U.S. Collaborative Review of Sterilization, also very popularly known as the CREST study, right? Right. So they studied basic methods that were available at that point in time um, and followed each of those methods and kind of understood pregnancies occurring within the first 10 years um, of each four methods of the laparoscopic sterilization studies, which was um, bipolar coagulation, unipolar, silicon rubber band application, and spring clip application. So remember, this is not reflective of the current, some of the current methods that we use. So most of these recent methods were never included this in this study, but it at least gave us an overview that it was not hundred percent that pregnancies would occur. And I think they followed up to 10,500 women um, for up to like eight to 14 years. And there were about 143 sterilization failures and they could come up with age-based, um, you know, what were the different types that were highly effective versus not, versus, you know, what type of sterilization had higher risk of ectopic, et cetera. So that some things for us to still extrapolate from that is that postpartum sterilization, um, which was kind of partial self at that time um, compared to the clip and everything, was way more highest efficacy. And more so, yes, right? Because even if you excluded like, all the luteal pregnancies, because what if someone was already pregnant at the time of sterilization, they were also considered pregnant, still postpartum sterilization, because definitely they're not pregnant at that point in time, was like a one with the highest efficacy. And then uh, bipolar coagulation, in which, you know, we use those clippingers to electrodesicate came a bit like the highest risk of ectopic pregnancy. I think those are still valuable information to remember. But I think in overview, these are really highly effective methods. Um, And also while counseling, I think you should counsel them as being permanent and being highly effective. But at the same time, put the vulnerability around saying still not 100%. So there is a small possibility of pregnancy. Um, despite them being very effective.
0: I wanted to kind of turn our attention to like how you counsel patients about safety and risks um, with, you know, different types of permanent sterilization. So what what do you tell patients um, in terms of, you know, who can get uh, the permanent sterilizations? What are the complications? Because it's such a permanent method, I think it's
2: really important to counsel women in advance. And remember, in some parts of the um, country and state, depending on, uh, you know, different insurances, there is actually a mandatory time period that, that may be required between the counseling and the actual sterilization. And these are methods to kind of prevent, you know, because of such permanent nature of this um, contraception, it is really, really, really important to counsel women about not only the risks, benefits, and alternatives, and also about the permanent nature of this, right? Because if a woman is asking me, like, oh, what, how how do you reverse it? I think one of my first things would be that you would probably, even if you're thinking about reversibility of this, we should really talk about all the other options. And I think it is a valid valid point to discuss all the different options available, including long-acting reversible methods, which have like comparable efficacy plus reversible. So I think no contraception counseling about sterilization is complete unless you actually go over all the alternatives and also talk about vasectomy and permanent sterilization in parallel just so that they can make a very informed choice. The permanent nature in order to understand that, like, I mean, reversible procedures are possible, but very expensive, usually not covered by insurance. Um, and also really counseling about the failure, risk of regret, which we're going to go into the details in a little bit of time. And also, yes, age and parity should be considered, but it shouldn't be a barrier for women to consider sterilization as long as they're really well informed. Our patients always tend to hone more on like what are the risks associated with it. But I also think you have to tell them the major benefits. I mean, it is permanent, so you don't have to do something again and again. The one of the other um, benefits is that although, again, I'm not saying that they directly protect against sexual transmitted infections, but it's been shown that from the lower genital tract to the peritoneal cavity, there is less of like spread of the you know, um, infection, so maybe lesser chance of like the PID or TOA because the tubes are like, especially with the full salpingectomy, you have, you may have less risk of those. So that might be one potential benefit. And multiple, multiple studies have now confirmed that any form of female permanent sterilization, tubal occlusion, partial salpingectomy, complete salpingectomy has some kind of protective effect against ovarian cancer, right? So especially very productive if you do salpingectomy for those who have BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation, because we know that there is some evidence that some types of ovarian cancer, right, not all of them may originate from the fimbria or like from the fallopian tube opportunistic salpingectomy, either at the time of, you know, as a part of sterilization or at the time of hysterectomy would significantly decrease the risk of ovarian cancer. But again, not to promise them that it eliminates the risk of ovarian cancer because there might be some non-epithelial tumors or the germ card card cell tumors that can um, benefit them. So I think the counseling also should include some of the potential benefits in addition to permanent nature, nothing to do on a daily basis permanent and you know the perfect and the typical use failure rates being really kind of good but again now focusing back on the risks or like the complications thinking about the female sterilization they have looked into um, the intraoperative and postoperative complications and it's very low um, less than about one, one 1.5 per 100 procedures, they say anywhere from point 0.9 to 1.6. And the risk of conversion to laparotomy, remember, if we are doing a laparoscopic approach is about less than 1% uh, or less than 1 per 100 cases. Of course, standard complication that we discuss with all our patients for any surgery, bleeding, infection, damage to bowel bladder, major blood vessels, um, rarely needing laparotomy, blood transfusion to manage these complications, uh, wound infection, sometimes chronic pelvic or abdominal pain these are possibilities. And if they've had multiple abdominal surgeries or like a higher BMI, sometimes the complication can be higher. So those risks have to be really talked to um, when you're counseling about permanent contraception. Um, Really the studies have not showed any major impact on ovarian function per se. So just removing the tube is not equal to menopause. So that, I mean, that's very separate thing. So we have, if, if someone confuses about it, you have to kind of talk to them about that. In the era of the crest, there was like, um, there was this question of, is there something called post tubal ligation syndrome, like bleeding abnormalities and stuff. But I think we established the fact that there was no more likely risk of any persistent menstrual changes or anything like that. In fact, what would happen is you would stop using your birth control pill or something. And now you're older with no birth control pill or anything. So your menstrual abnormalities are unmasking and that could be the confounding factor. For something like that to happen but really no changes in the menstrual cycle changes and also it's not likely to change any sexual interest or pleasure because that might be one of the things that you may have to counsel the overall risk of ectopic pregnancy because that's another thing we need to talk to patients about that it's really low because I mean pregnancy risk itself is like so low that the risk of ectopic pregnancy is really low after female permanent sterilization However. If a true failure were to happen and, you know, pregnancy were to happen, then I think one in three, like almost 30% of those pregnancies are ectopic pregnancies. Um, So you have to be really kind of, you know, um, you have to talk to your provider very quickly if you did get pregnant after a salpingectomy or like a partial or a complete salpingectomy or any type of uh, female permanent sterilization. So um, very rarely for female permanent sterilization, there's this thing called post ablation tubal sterilization syndrome. These are women who've had like endometrial ablation for, you know, variety of bleeding reasons and et cetera. But what happens is there might be some um, regenerative um, tissue, like the endometrial tissue in the carnal regions or the that area of the uterine cavity whereas um, those who've had both endometrial ablation and tubal surgery may later develop some kind of like retrograde bleeding leading to a lot of pain and needing intervention this is like the post p-a-t-s-s or post ablation tubal sterilization syndrome. So again, only exclusively for those who have had like endometrial ablation, but the other things that I talked about are some things we should talk to women who are thinking about the um, permanent sterilization. The cumulative um, regret um, is kind of really low, but then what happens is if they're younger and haven't been counseled well, then the regret could be almost four times higher for those who are like, younger compared to those who are older than 30 years of age in the crust data. But again, I think counseling is the key. Um, You have to explore all other options. And sometimes like, really I have seen so many times an ill-informed kind of patient would totally like sway towards one or another. And like sometimes long acting reversible methods have never been brought up. So those are not okay because those are the patients in which the regret rate is like really high. And talking about the safety and risks of vasectomy, vasectomy I think is way more safer compared to the, um, compared to the female sterilization, but some contraindications for vasectomy is like presence of scrotal hematoma existing infection or um you know any sperm granuloma, etc. But I think bleeding diastysis or any um, bleeding abnormalities is a relative contraindication because you don't want to have a scrotal hematoma when you perform like these office-based uh, vasectomy. Um basic complications with vasectomies pretty much like hematoma infection um sometimes like Sperm leaks from the vasectomy and forms like a tender mass called sperm granuloma. Um, again, very benign, usually just expectant management and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications, but pretty common after vasectomy and sometimes like post-vasectomy pain syndrome those are some of the um, some of the common complications of vasectomy. And remember, for those undergoing vasectomy, um, they have to have a semen analysis um, three months postoperatively. And until that time, we do have to have some form of contraception for their partners, um, if the female partners. And then, um, if there is still sperm present in the three months, they repeat another semen analysis in a month, and then um, confirm negative specimen. If it's there, then it's success, but then failure is if there is a pregnancy or confirmed sperm after like a negative specimen. So that's also a possible, possible risk is the failure as well. So those are some of the um, common safety and risk factors that we need to counsel both for male and female sterilization and um, things associated with that.
1: No, super. Dr. There, this has been so thorough and so informative um, on a topic that, again, I think many of us in our training kind of encounter and then gloss over after hearing about sort of the basics of tubal sterilization. Um, So we really appreciate your time and giving us such a great overview today.
2: Thank you so much for having me too. I hope this was useful and I hope your listeners find this
0: um, useful in their practice. All right, guys. So this brings us to the end of this episode. Once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Criogs Over Coffee.
1: So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, and give us a five-star reading and review.
0: You can find us on social media on Twitter at CriogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at coffee And if you want to donate to the show, you can find us on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash coffee.
1: You can find show notes for this episode as well as all of our previous episodes and the Rosh Review Question of the Week on our website, CreeEggsOverCoffee.com.
0: And if you want to email us with questions or have a topic that you'd like for us to cover or you want to reach out to Dr. Sridhar, go ahead and email us at CreeEggsOverCoffee at gmail.com.